Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. I don't know how your Tuesday has been, but I'm sure it will only get better as you continue to listen to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and join us for this episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens, and sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and thank those who are going to listen to the program. Appreciate your uh, listening to us this evening. And we look forward to you not only listening, but also interacting with us. If you are listening on Saturday's rebroadcast of this episode. We look forward to welcoming you next Tuesday to the live broadcast so you can interact live with us, but you can still send in your questions on Saturday and we will answer them next Tuesday as we start off the episode. Pastor Murphy, we have several questions that have come in since last week's episode, and then we will jump back into our topic of crime and punishment, which we started last week. Our first question says, Good night. This comes from a listener. Of lately, I'm being told by plenty people why I don't get a transfer to work close to home. I shrug at the question and suggestion. Come to think of it, I would always be told to be careful while going to work. I wonder if God speaks through these people to me. To be honest, if God wants me to relocate relocate to work close to home, I will obey. What should I do? A very practical question, Pastor. What's your perspective? Well, uh, number one, I don't know the background to the, her circumstances and as far as her um, work uh, tenure and job tenure. I have no idea. Uh, so to offer final counsel on that is, is outside my pale. However, I would like to make a few comments uh, from what was sent in. Uh, one would be uh, that the person not jeopardize their job uh, sh- solely on the word of mouth of others. I'm not. I'm not too sure what others are telling the person why they can't be uh, employed or relocated closer. So I don't know what the motivation is there. Period. Uh, number two, if you think it's advantageous for you and the company, it can't just be for you. It has to be for the company as well. Uh, if you think it's advantageous for you and your company to relocate to a nearer location to, uh, within your, your uh, near your home. I think you should <clears throat> sit down with the boss and discuss matters with him and perhaps try to persuade him why it would be better to be located near your home than further from your home. But I don't think you should make a unilateral decision without bringing the boss into the picture. I'm not too sure why people will tell you to be careful when you're going to work. Uh, I, I'm not too sure if you, you're taking the, the given too much weight to counsel that is normally given to people when they say, well, be careful when you're on the road or something. So I'm not too sure why they'd be given that kind of counsel. 
the other thing is that you, you seem to be very open to relocate if it was God's will, and I commend you for that. So um, there's so many things for your perspective uh, that if the Lord would give you uh, guidance on this matter, you'd be prepared to, to relocate. What I would suggest to you, meanwhile, uh, a few things I would suggest to you. Number one, work hard. I would suggest to you to try to be the best worker uh, in in your workplace. Uh, I would also be very thankful for the job that I have in light of the fact that we're in the COVID era and jobs are so tight. Um, I would seek God's guidance in respect to what I should do in response to the counsel that I'm being given by these others. Is this uh, good counsel, bad counsel? Do they have uh, ulterior motives that are not in my best interest? Uh, I think I would look at that. Uh, but I would never make a decision uh, about my job, whether if you don't get a relocation to leave. You don't leave a job unless you have another job, and especially in these tight days, uh, you would not do that. Uh, if you do decide that there's some prejudice against you or some bias towards you and you're going to need a job, uh, don't leave with a bad spirit. Never burn your bridges, uh, at least uh, discuss the matter. And then if you have another job offer, uh, for whatever reason, maybe they offer you more, better conditions, sit down with your current boss and let them see it and come up to par with what you're being offered, provided that you're at ease and you like where you're working. You know, don't just drop and go and you know lose your years that you've been there, or if you've got a good relationship with the, the working staff, to go into a new setting. And um, there are times uh, when you have to make adjustments. And I think that uh, when you do make those adjustments, I do feel that it's important to discuss matters uh, with those in authority in that respect. So there's a lot of things I can't tell you, and I don't know the situation. Um, but I would be very leery of listening to advice of that nature. Maybe somebody wants your job and would stir up some problems with you and the boss because you want to work close to home, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe there are very good reasons for the company not allowing you to work in a different location that's closer to your home. Um, best thing to do is to be very open if you're really concerned about this matter and discuss it with your boss, et cetera, et cetera. But don't uh, put yourself in a trap where you fall to the council of people who really don't have your best interests. Uh, somebody may be around the corner hoping that you would leave so that they may get a job or they have a friend to replace you. Um, ask the Lord about this matter, and unless you have peace, don't make a move in, in this matter. Pastor, from a biblical perspective, what advice would you give to maybe an individual who has just finished secondary school and is looking to start a career or a career path, or maybe an individual who's been in the job force for 10 years and lost their job because of COVID and is maybe trying to discern a different career path? How does a Christian go about choosing what the correct job is for them? Well, look, I think that one of the things that we need to look at is our air giftedness. I think there are a lot of people in jobs that they're not gifted for. It's money. It's uh, a career. But really, that's not the, the, the way that God has gifted them. There are some people who are very good uh, with their hands, but yet they want jobs that entail things other than manual work. I, I think sometimes it's pride as well that gets, as far as that is concerned, we've set certain types of jobs at certain levels, and if you are not within that certain level, you always look down what you haven't achieved. I think that's an, another issue. But to me, the important thing is to uh, know your area of giftedness, how God has gifted you, and um, depending on your, your schoolwork, for example, there's some people who are not academic. I don't know why parents 
kill kids who are not academic. Not everybody's academic. Uh, I, I, if your child is not academic and you're not academic, well, f- find an area that you can um, that you have some some skill in, or you you're inclined in that area. And by the way, there are a lot of um, colleges, a lot of uh, schools now that offer so many courses online that you don't have to go to within a, a, um, a, a school setting. If you prefer to take your time and, and do it according to your, your schedule, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and a lot of these courses are very, very exhaustive. So I, I would say to you, look at the area of giftedness, um, look at the careers that are available as well. There's some careers that are, you know, that are pretty much filled uh, I think in, in most cases, there's so many doctors now, so many lawyers that <laughs> they're like almost like crabs in a, in a barrel trying to get <laughs> on each other. Uh, but there are many other areas that uh, you try to get a, um, a constant career uh, person who is dealing with that area and try to give you the direction as where the job opportunities are in the future. Certainly, if you're going in the area of technology, in the area of uh, the computers, etc., that is an open field because there's so many different areas that are being developed ex- in that field. And then, of course, the other thing is you've got to f- feel that the Lord is calling you to do whatever you're called to do, whether you be called to be a doctor, a nurse, a lawyer, a mason, a carpenter. Uh, you feel that just how you can, uh, God is calling you to, to, to perform in that area. They're, they're missionaries, for example that all they do is they use the carpentry skills or they use other skills. That's what they do on the mission field. Um, so I just think you have to look at your area of giftedness. Um, I would feel out the market for what is available and what has a trending as, as far as success in the future. I would try to avoid those, those uh, job areas that are saturated, and I would bury my pride and try to look for something that I'm comfortable with that would give me a reasonable income. And I think, and the other thing I would suggest to, to women, especially if you are out there, uh, I would suggest that there are so many different opportunities out within your work home, within your home, especially if you have small kids. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to the workforce after the children starting with the school, but I think the first seven years of a child's life is the formative years of a child's life. And if you can find something to do at home, and chances are, by the way, you can do something at home that will pay you much better than going to a little shop selling this or selling the other. It's just sometimes that people's pride get in the way. And you are making the greatest contribution to society by investing in the life of your child. So don't let anybody demean you to think that a housewife doesn't do anything. Uh, believe you me, that work never done. And that is never finished. I, I, I'm aware of that. Uh, so don't be pushed into doing something that uh, just because of what people think about it. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, or broadcasting from the island of Antigua. And the name of the program, if you've just tuned in, is That's Truth. It's a live, interactive call-in program where you can call and be put live on the air to ask your question. It can be a question about anything, and Pastor Murphy will answer it from a biblical perspective. What does the Bible say about this topic? Why doesn't the Bible talk about this topic? Why doesn't it talk more about it? And the phone number to call and be put live on the air is one 268 462-7420. You don't have to be a Christian or a follower of Christ to call and ask your questions. No matter what your background, we would be glad to interact with you on the program. Maybe you don't want to call and be put live on the air. Not a problem. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one 268 1454 Pastor Murphy, we have a WhatsApp question from Antigua. 
I would like Pastor Murphy to shed some light on narcissism in general, but specifically covert narcissism. I'm looking forward to hearing this answer. Well, I'm going to just give a general comment on it because I think we're going to probably have to do a program on it. Um, uh, Narcissism really is a psychological disorder uh, that's characterized by a person's inordinate uh, self-centeredness. The whole attitude towards life, everything is about themselves. Uh, the term itself is borrowed from Greek mythology, uh, where the young man Narcissus, um, the son of Cephisus, uh, fell in love with his own reflection in the pool, and he became so enamored with himself that he scorned the love of he- Hector, and as a result, he pined away until, according to mythology, he was changed into a plant that is called the Narcissus plant. The Narcissus plant is a, a bulbous plant having showy flowers with a cup-shaped uh, crown. Um, so that's where you get the concept from. But uh, basically, it's a, a person whose entire life revolves around themselves, and everything they do basically is in, in their own self-interest. There are two types of it. There's the overt and the covert. The overt type, of course, would mean that they openly display this. You can actually see that they're a narcissistic person, that all, 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 all their whole, whole life is about themselves. The most dangerous one is the covert one, where uh, there's a veneer of benevolence uh, that is shown towards others, but in actual fact, there's always an ulterior motive that has self-interest. Uh, that is just basically what it is, but the marks of it and the characteristics of it and how, you, uh, how you're able to dis, uh, decipher uh, a narcissistic person, I think that that requires a program in itself. So maybe the next program, if we get rid of this one, we'll, we'll look at narcissism and look at it from uh, a biblical, biblical perspective as well as to look at the marks and the characteristics that would define a person as narcissistic. Thank you for that question and for suggesting that or putting that in our minds as a future episode. So, Pastor, covert narcissism would be manipulation? Manip- a lot of manipulation. Okay. A lot of manipulation. And, but it, it's done under the guise that is your interest in you when the actual fact you're being manipulated for their own interests. It's a very subtle form uh, of 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 uh, uh, self inordinate self interest, but that's what it is. And there are people like that. To be honest with you, everything is about themselves, but uh, they really have an, a hidden motive. And sometimes they seem to be so beneficent and benevolent towards you that you think that uh, you are the, the the real person that a focus. But in actual fact, is how they can use you to their advantage. And is it possible for that to happen in Christian marriages? Well, uh, <laughs> anything is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and again, a lot, a lot of it too has to do with your upbringing. Um, normally, if you have a narcissistic dad or narcissistic mom, uh, it, it, it carries over into the, the the family. It runs basically, and uh, it is almost like a, an adopted trait that one acquires. It's like a like a person who um, goes through abuse at home and sees his daddy beats his mom and makes his mind I will never beat my mommy, beat, beat my wife. And next day, you know that the wife is calling you <laughs> that he's beating me. Because that's the, he's learned it's a learned behavior. Pastor, we the next WhatsApp question that has come in says, Pastor, and this one's a little lengthy, so I'll read through it and then we'll get to the questions. Pastor, I agree with you concerning the law system, but God said wrong will become right and right will become wrong. I look at it as brought down from Moses' time when God took the spirit from Moses and shared it with the seventy men. But over the years as we are taught that sin, if not cut off, only gets worse. 
So as time passed, God's moral law was replaced by secular or natural law. On the end, on the end, God is looking for the ambassadors to stand for righteousness, and especially in these time, trying times. So would you agree? Would you agree, not agree? Anyone? Actually, more so for a Christian lawyer, finding themselves in a situation where their client is guilty of the crime should stand and do the right thing by God's law, being a Christian. I believe a lawyer who does the job knowing it's immoral is only therefore for himself, power, position, and money. Look, um, any uh, person who commits a crime and knowingly commits a crime and uh, is known that they're guilty, um, there's no question about that they should be held accountable. And in my judgment, uh, I don't care which lawyer he is, if he's represented the person and he knows his guilt, I think that should be dealt with from a guilt perspective. That does not mean, however, that when it comes to the matter of consequences and, and sentencing, <clears throat> that they should not be factors that are taken into consideration. For example, I think of a person's admission of guilt. Uh, I think that's a big factor uh, when a person, whether or not we're going to define what the penalty is going to be. I think genuine remorse, uh, again, is another factor that should be taken when it comes to sentencing. Uh, a, a plea for mercy, uh, again, the guilty person should should request mercy. And I think also the overall circumstances of the person and the crime that was committed. And wherever there's a nonviolent crime, um, I feel that uh, there should not be a custodial sentence. I think it should be required that the person makes restitution of some kind uh, to the victim. But uh, definitely, it, it cannot be right for uh, a guilty person to be uh, set free uh, through a clever lawyer using all kinds of um, gymnastics, mental gymnastics, to, to win over the jury when they know the person is guilty. The other thing I would like to say here, if I might add this, is that I think that one of the greatest mistakes of Christianity and of Christians. I think Christians have betrayed Christianity, and they've done it in the way that uh, they have accepted the, the dictum that uh, religion is private. It just belongs to the home and the church, and you shouldn't take it out into the marketplace. I think that's a betrayal of Christianity. Christ Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, and we should wear or carry our Christianity wherever we go. When we go into our professions, we don't take off Christianity and lay it in the in the in our home and then uh, come to our professions. We take Christianity into our professions. Uh, and the other thing uh, I would say is that you know, if the former generation of believers uh, had actually lived this way, uh, all of the great moral social changes that have been made uh, in the Western world have substantially been made by men who carry their religion into whatever position that whether that be in Parliament whether it had to do with uh, reform in terms of um, criminal reform, whether it had to do with changing the social system, is always uh, people who had a conscience and uh, spoke from their uh, religion that was substantially responsible for all the great social and moral changes that we see in life. So I think that the mistake we're making today is to bind into the argument that we really, you know, we keep religion out of the workplace, we keep it out of parliament, we keep it out of the, the uh, executive office, we keep it out of government. I think that's one of the greatest betrayal of, of, uh, of Christianity. And by the way, when we do that, we have surrendered by default to the non-Christian view. Yeah. And I cannot see how that could ever be right for Christian. So rather than, uh, and are we not supposed to be the light and the salt, get this, not of the 
church, but of the world, see? So I think that we're making a grave mistake by surrendering to this dictum that we keep religion very private, it belongs to the church, it belongs to the home, but don't bring it into the workplace. I think that's a massive mistake and a betrayal of Christianity. So for the listener who just heard you share that and says, you know what, Pastor, I'm guilty of that. How do I turn this around? Do I just go to the workplace tomorrow and start shouting, I'm a Christian? <laughs> no, I think that they will become, they will have opportunities again for if you have surrendered, you know something was wrong or you see something that should have been talked about or whatever it is, I think those will come again. But I think at that point, you said, I've been silent too long. And uh, I just want to let you guys know that I'm a believer and this thing is wrong and give a biblical base for it. So I think it will come. I don't think you get up there and shout and say, no, I'm from, and no. I think when it comes up, there's nothing wrong in saying, listen, I should have spoken out on these matters before I didn't, and I'm ashamed I didn't do it. And I want to apologize for you that I didn't do it. But I can't let you get away with this one again. This is absolutely wrong. As a believer, should I be ashamed to bow my head in prayer before a meal when I'm in public? Absolutely not. I think in, 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 in your workplace, I think it is always proper if you have a, a, a canteen or you have a, a kitchen where you have your meals, I think it is proper to bow your head and say a prayer. Why Why would we be ashamed? But what if it makes non-believers feel uncomfortable? Well, that's their problem. That's not my problem. My problem is to honor my Lord, okay? And if they're offended that I pray over my meal, that's their problem. It's not my problem, right? And we don't, you know, we don't try to be offensive by by doing things that normally upset people. But uh, certainly we should be thankful for God. And if we got a meal, there's nothing wrong. In, and by the way, those people who seem to be opposed to this kind of thing, if we are consistent, if we are consistent, in, not only in our prayers, but consistent in our Christian behavior, respect develops after a period of time. They might say all kinds of things they want to say about you uh, and try to tear you down. But ultimately, when they see that you are consistent in your faith and you're uh, living out your Christian principles uh, and not being obnoxious in doing that, I think eventually you gain respect from people. Recently heard someone say that, that you may lose friendships, you may lose relationships, but you'll never lose respect yep. for taking a consistent stand on the Bible. Well said. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.53. We still have just over an hour in this episode, plenty of time for you to send in your questions. We have a number of questions that have already come in. If you haven't heard your question yet, we are not ignoring it. We're asking them in the order in which they came in. So stay tuned. Continue to encourage others to tune into That's Truth. And we will give you your ask your question to Pastor Murphy shortly. If you'd like to call and be put live on the air, you can call 1-268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one 268 7821454 Pastor Murphy another question what was the thorn in Paul's flesh well, nobody knows because Paul didn't specify. And I think it's wise for him he didn't specify because when we go to a thorn and it's not Paul's, we might be saying, well, Lord, it's not. But the fact that he used that term thorn and the fact that it made it uncomfortable because I besought the Lord three times and he said uh, uh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. So clearly there's some pain, some anguish, some anxiety that's there. Some people, I will tell you what they speculate. Most people speculate, uh, Bible commentary say that it probably had to do with his eyes. Because you remember Paul was um, almost blinded on the Damascus Road, and it's believed that he never fully recovered uh, his eyesight. When he wrote the book of Galatians, he said, Have I not written you these large letters 
so there seemed to be some uh, problem with his eyes, and they believed that that was one of the, the, the issues that uh, Paul faced. That uh, here he was, the chief apostle, writing thirteen epistles, and you can very well, and he did use what you call a manuscript or secretary to write some of his, his books. It is believed that that was his problem. But again, it is pure speculation. Nobody knows, and I think it's useful for us because it has a beneficial view, uh, aspect. Because by analogy, we can put ourselves in his same condition, and uh, and not being able to say specifically that this is the same thing that Paul had. One other thing, the, the second view is, of course, is not only his eyes. Some people think it was his pride, because if you read the same chapter, Paul said he went to the third heaven. He saw things he could not have uttered. And uh, there's people that believe that, you know, um, you, you can't read Philippians, for example, without believing that Paul was a very proud man before he was saved. He documents, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, I was a tribe of Benjamin, uh, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I mean, clearly this man was a man wrapped up in his position. Now he became converted, doesn't mean that pride uh, is completely squashed out of his life. Pride is always lingering around the door of every heart, waiting to get a foothold in. And it's possible uh, that that was also to restrain the Apostle Paul and keep him humble and totally dependent upon God in that regard. As a matter of fact, in that same passage, he said, lest I be exalted above measure, a thorn was given to me. So through the great revelations he had, the abundant revelations, uh, the possibility that uh, he might have engendered some kind of pride in Paul, and therefore the Lord put the thorn to keep Paul dependent upon himself. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. Pastor, WhatsApp from the Southern Caribbean. Question for tonight's That's Truth. Last Saturday, an 85-year-old woman was the victim of a brutal crime. She was raped by a 26-year-old man in her neighborhood. My question is, what spiritual guidance and word of comfort should be given to this senior citizen? Moreover, since we live in the era of grace and truth and should forgive others of their trespasses, how should the senior citizen go about forgiving this young man? Please note, this young man who committed this crime was imprisoned before for other crimes. Also, many will reason that this old woman brought this upon herself, but had this happened to a pastor's daughter, what would be the outcome? As a pastor, how would you deal with this situation? Well, number one, um, I'm surprised that anybody would think this woman brought it upon herself. This is an 87-year-old woman. This is 82-year-old woman. 85-year-old woman. This is a 26-year-old man. Yeah. There's no, uh, there can be no attraction there, period. This is pure, brutal, uh, animalistic behavior on the behalf of this young man. So I cannot see anybody in Antigua listening to a case like that or anybody in the Caribbean thinking that this woman brought it upon herself. I think, I think uh, even unsafe people would be totally disgusted yeah. that an act of this could have. So I'm not too sure why that suggestion would have been made. The other thing is that even though this is the age of grace and mercy, when a person commits such a brutal crime, there should be consequences. Uh, clearly, this woman is going to have to learn to forgive this young man, and it will take um, some time to do that. You just can't, off the bat, develop the feelings that uh, I just need to forgive. As a matter of fact, I don't know how brutal it was. I, supp I suppose she might have been torn inside because I can't conceive of this activity going on, but she must have been brutally um, and, and, and probably um, have t torn parts of her body, et cetera, et cetera. So it'd be hard for her to just glibly say, I forgive. But I think she's going to have to come to the point where 
ultimately, she learns that uh, we ought to forgive in this respect. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean there should not be consequences. There should be consequences to this young man. The fact that he's been in jail is a factor, but it does not in any way indicate that because he was in jail, he's justified uh, in doing what he's made a decision. He's made choices. Choices are result in consequences. Consequences result in a, a character that's being formed, and then you have this kind of behavior. Um, as far as the, the elderly lady is concerned, I don't know if she's a believer or not a believer, uh, and that will determine the approach you take in dealing with her. If she is a believer, you can normally uh, approach her from the perspective of, of, of God's grace and God's mercy and, and, and God's uh, favor uh, in that regard. She might have some complications about why the Lord didn't protect her from this uh, uh, brutal uh, uh, rape. But again, uh, we have to understand that God can't, does not intervene in every case, and he will not intervene in every case because people are responsible for their actions, uh, etc. But uh, I would think the only consolation uh, there is the assurance of God's love, uh, God's grace, and God's favor. Um, I would also try to see if there's any way I can help her medically, uh, in any way I can help to rebuild her sense of security, because once this has happened to her, I don't know where it happened, if it's in her home, uh, she will never want to again feel secure in her home. I will have to mm. see if there's anything I can do. If she belonged to our church, I would probably have tried to see if I can get some of the individuals, somebody to stay by her, or even within the Baptist circle, if we can rotate so it doesn't become a burden on anybody until she comes back to a state of normalcy. But she just needs somebody to hug her, uh, um, embrace her, um, help her to know that uh, in spite of what has happened, people love her, people care for her, try to meet her needs, any medical attention that she uh, that uh, needs to be done, uh, should be done. And, um, and then there has to be a process of healing, and that will come through the reading of the Scripture, prayer, and just uh, talking with her, and just, just sometimes just being there with her uh, would be very helpful. For the young man who committed this crime, um, is, there, is there hope? Is there ever a possibility of him being saved or changed? There's hope for everybody. Uh, every every person every, every person was hope for Barabbas. There was hope for even Judas. He wanted except it's hope. Um, hope is found in Jesus Christ, and this young man can experience a change in his life. Look, there are people um, that you can read books on who were some of the greatest criminals. Uh, who came to faith in Jesus Christ and was wonderfully transformed. There's so many people in America that can give that story of how that the experience of meeting Christ uh, in prison have transformed their life. So there's a hope uh, for this young man. But uh, again, there must be consequences. He cannot be just glibly uh, released. He should pay some consequences. This is a brutal uh, crime, and uh, this is a violent crime as well. Uh, and I think there should be consequences, but there's hope for him, uh, there's forgiveness for him, there's restoration for him, and there's transformation for him. But it all, is co- all comes to his repentance, putting his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and allowing God to clean up his life, working through the Word, the Holy Spirit, and hopefully the mentoring of some, of some believer. If you are interested in hearing some powerful testimonies of how the gospel of Jesus Christ has transformed lives and hearts, be sure to listen to Unshackled. It airs every 
weekday evening at 9.30 p.m. So stay on 30 minutes after the program tonight and you will hear an exciting dramatized story of another life or lives that were changed as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are listening to the program tonight and you say the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm not familiar with it. I need to know more. Pastor, what is the gospel? The gospel is simply the message that God loves us and God out of his love sent his son to die in our place to pay the price for our sins and that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross, God pardons us, God forgives us, God adopts us to his family, God regenerates us, God justifies us, and God begins his sanctifying work in our lives because the indwelling Holy Spirit perfects holiness in us. As we use the word of God and we pray uh, to the Lord and we get involved in church, and get to meet other believers, uh, iron sharpeneth iron, and uh, as a result, there's this transformation that takes place. But the gospel is simply putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repenting of your sins. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And you can also join us for this particular program on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can see behind the scenes. You can listen to the program, watch the program, and you can also comment and interact with us live during tonight's episode. If you comment a suggested topic or a question, we will pass it on to Pastor Murphy during the program. If you would like to call and be put live on the air, your topic does not have to deal with tonight's topic of uh, crime and punishment. It can be on any topic, but you can call and ask 1-268-462-7420. If you want to WhatsApp or text your question, send it to the following number, one 282 one four five four, Pastor. Another, yeah, yeah, go ahead. yeah. I would like to say something, Nathan. Uh, I hope that sometime in the future, I know this is futuristic. I hope that sometime in the future that um, your station, at some point in time, would be able to take the testimonies of people who have really gone down Skid Road, and just like Unshackle, okay. share because people think it only happens to Americans or it happens to to English people, basically. But right here in the Caribbean, there'd be people who've been wonderfully transformed. And if they were to just share some of their testimonies, it might uh, enliven hope in people who think that they're gone beyond recovery. So I hope at some point in time down the line when it, it, it can be done, I hope you'll take that into consideration. And if you're listening tonight and you have a, I know every testimony of the gospel is a powerful testimony. But if you have a testimony that you are wanting to share Give us a call here at the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're in the process of producing a program. We haven't started airing it yet, but called What's Your Story? And a very brief testimonial of how the Lord changed your heart and your life because of the gospel. But if you have a long testimony and would like to share it, give me a call here at the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse uh, tomorrow during the working day, and I would be glad, or even uh, call now and Marianne will answer and get your contact information. I would be glad to... uh, set up and uh, do an interview with you and to uh, consider broadcasting that and sharing how the Lord has transformed your life. We are here to share the gospel and to hopefully see lives changed as a result of the gospel. A WhatsApp question from Antigua. When the Bible says, keep the Sabbath day holy, what does it mean? Well, again, look, we, this probably the seven Adventists uh, trying to push the the Sabbath on everybody, look, 
The Sabbath belonged to the Old Covenant. It was given to Israel, and uh, we are told specifically in the under the Old Covenant, that was the day that celebrated basically Israel, the creation, the old creation, and Israel's redemption. There's a new day that begins the new creation and uh, celebrates the new covenant, and that is the Lord's Day, which is on Sunday. Okay, We're not told anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, all there, there are Ten Commandments. Uh, and you'll find in the New Testament, nine of those are reincorporated into the New Covenant. The only one that's not incorporated into the Old Co- into the New Covenant is the Sabbath. We're given the direction, the Apostle Paul, let every man be fully persuaded in his own heart. Let no man judge you in respect to any Sabbath. Those things were shadows. The Sabbath was a shadow of rest. Jesus Christ came and he is the true rest. So it has fulfilled its purpose. We don't go back to the shadow because we've got the substance. We've got Christ. So that is why we don't observe the Sabbath because it belonged to the Old Covenant and it was a sign of Israel's redemption from Egypt. Now we've got the new creation in Christ and we've got the new redemption that is eternal redemption through Jesus Christ. So, And the other thing, I mean, in connection uh, with, with this matter, uh, if you go to the book of Revelations, the word there's the Lord's Day. There are only two times that word is used in the New Testament, and the word is Lordian Day and Lordian Supper. They're the only two references in the Bible that uses that expression, and that's why it's called the Lord's Day. It's not the, Lord, the Day of the Lord you find in the Old Testament, which is a different expression. Uh, so that is why, and there are other reasons as well, but there's no, uh, we don't believe that um, it's incumbent upon the believer uh, in this new dispensation, in this new covenant, uh, to observe the Sabbath. We observe the day of our Lord's resurrection, which brought about the new creation, and the substance of our Lord is the, of which the, sh- the, the, the Sabbath is a shadow. So we have Him, and we have the substance. We don't need the shadow any longer. A WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good night, good program. Pastor Murphy, what is your view on ELS code in the Bible? And let me just give a little description of ELS code. The primary method by which purportedly meaningful messages have been extracted from the Bible is by equidistant letter sequence, or ELS. To obtain an ELS from a text, choose a starting point, in principle, any letter, and skip a certain number, and also freely and possibly negative. Okay. And an example would be, in the book, there was a rabbi decades ago that noticed that the word Torah, T-O-R-A-H, in the Hebrew uh, book of Genesis, was spelled out. Uh, He found the letter T, and then the 50th letter after that was O, and the 50th letter after that was R, so on and so forth. And he found that that happened 56,000 times in the book of Genesis. I'm just reading this off the internet. but So anyway, I think we've got an idea. What is your view on the ELS code in the Bible, Pastor? I think it's poppycock. I think it's inanity. I don't think we need to go in that direction. There's no secret code that is there in the Bible for these kind of things. God has revealed to us through propositional truth. That's how God speaks to us. So there's no numbers that you've got to look at, etc., etc., etc. So I don't really, I think a lot of this is uh, maybe Jewish fables, and Jews are always known for these kind of intricate details, etc., etc. But uh, I don't find any warrant for it. I don't find that the Apostle Paul Paul's attention to any of these codes, and none of the New Testament writers called any attention to any of these codes. So clearly, if, if they existed, I would think these inspired apostles would have actually indicated that these are codes that you need to look for. 
you don't find that these kind of things I mentioned. I just think that um, I think people are looking for something esoteric rather than just the simple truth of Scripture. And the simple Scripture was designed for the ordinary man. Remember when the Greek language, they found out the Greek language was Koine Greek. They thought it was classical Greek and thought it was some kind of heavenly language. Then when they discovered it in the dumps, and they dug up the dumps and found the, the receipts and found correspondence, they discovered, wait a minute, this is the average language of the average man. That's how God wants to carry the message to the whole world, simplicity. I think all of these different methods are just trying to complicate issues and trying to seem more scientific and more esoteric. All it impresses is the intellectual. It doesn't impress the ordinary man out there who's looking for simple truth to embrace, and that's how God is. He expresses truth in very simplistic form. We just accept that. So I don't, I don't buy this um, ESL and other forms of codes. I just think it's... Uh, humanistic, and I, I avoid those kind of issues. We have a listener who wants to know, Pastor, why are some pastors calling themselves apostles? Well, I look. It depends on what denomination you're you're, you're coming from. Um, uh, within certain circles, I don't want to um, identify a circle, but generally speaking, within the Pentecostal circle, there would be so much extremism in these kind of things. I think that um, they they think that the, the apostle has some kind of special authority that may be even superior to the pastor. Some are even claiming to be prophets. Uh, some are even claiming that all the all the offices and all the gifts that uh, the Lord gave in the New Testament they're relevant for today. I mean, it doesn't matter of debate. But there's no true apostle today. To be a true apostle, you have to have seen the Lord. And uh, I don't have any of them that would have said they've seen the Lord, okay? And Paul said, now we know no man after the flesh. And, of course, it's referring to Christ. We know him not after the flesh. We know him spiritually. So I, I, I don't know why the denominations are doing it, but I'm suspicious of it because if you read the book of Ephesians, we're told that the church was founded on the teachings of the apostles and prophets. Now, that's the foundation they laid the foundation, and then Paul talks about evangelists and pastors and teachers. Those are the ones that would build on the foundation. So what continues to there are the pastors, the teachers, and the evangelists. The apostles and the prophets already fulfilled their role in laying the foundation. We don't need the foundation any longer because the, the Word of God is complete. You are listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you to the individuals who have already sent in their questions. If you want to send in your question via WhatsApp or text message, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Got a question for you. When was the last time that you encouraged someone to tune in to That's Truth? If it's been a while, even if it was just five minutes ago, go ahead and encourage someone else to tune in to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse for the next 45 minutes. Pastor, we are going to jump into our topic from last week, which is crime and punishment. And we, you gave a lot of definitions last week, a lot of uh, foundational work was covered, uh, what exactly crime is, whether sin and crime is synonymous what the causes of crime were, and we were finishing up with what the biblical view of crime. Can you just give us a brief overview to lay the foundation if someone hadn't tuned in to last week's episode? 
Well, I think we kind of made a distinction between crime and sin, basically. We pointed out all sin is not crime and all crime is not sin, and uh, we explained that. But I think that we need to understand that really crime is, uh, in the current dispensation, uh, where we're not under theocracy, crime is really defined by the government and the, those who make the laws of a country. So whatever activity, uh, whatever negligence, or whatever uh, 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 thing that is done that is injurious to other people, they decide uh, that this is a crime and it needs to be punished. Uh, I think that's what we we tried to establish uh, last week. So, And then we pointed out that some governments institute um, call things crimes that are not crimes. Uh, depending on which part of the world you're in. So we talked about the matter of you can't, certain places you can't carry the Bible, can't distribute the Bible. Uh, and I think in the West, we're headed to the point where you can't preach on certain things in the Bible because there seem to be uh, against certain public sins that are allowed. Yes, sir. Pastor, we have a call from Antigua Codrington. Thank you for calling. And go ahead quickly with your question, please. Yeah, my question is, um, when um, God did about Adam and Eve out of the garden, they didn't have no baby as yet, right? Right. And um, the, another one, with um, Sinemann, when he said he won't see death before the um, the baby, he see the Messiah, Jesus Christ, uh-huh. right? So um, I want to know about the, the two swords, because you have one with Eve, and then you have one with um, the one with piercing Mary's heart, and the, the sword will pierce her heart, it, it being that the child is going to be um, a man to save, which means is God, a man going to save the Israelites and them from... Well, the, uh, the, I can't remember. Yeah, the, the um, sword. This, yeah, thank you. The sword that will pierce Mary's heart really has to do with the death of her son. That it, which a very painful experience for her, even though she has the Son of God uh, given birth to him. She's been the vessel, yet uh, it's going to lead ultimately to his death. And that's that's the sword. The sword that will pierce her is to see her son hanging across naked and to suffer the kind of ignominious death that he suffered at the Roman's hand. That, that, that's his sword that he's talking about, that really pierced her heart to see her son in that condition. Uh, what's the other one you, you asked me? The other one, when God drive them out of um, the garden and pierced a sword in the garden. Yeah, well, he put, a, he put a, The sword will guard the key of life. Right, he put, the cher- he put a cherubim there to protect a man from going and participating of the fruit that would lead to to life. God did not want man living uh, forever in a sinful condition. So therefore, he preempted that by stopping man having access to the tree of life because here was a man who had sinned. And then if he had gone and eaten the fruit of life, he would have lived forever uh, in a sinful condition. And that's why the cherubim was placed there with a sword to guard the the, uh, the, the tree of life uh, at that time. Yeah, so um, that was a generation when he drive, drive them out of um, the garden. They mm. didn't have no baby as yet, right? Right. Right. And then when they come out of the garden now, they start to have babies up right. to the time of um, the birth of Jesus Christ. So you would say that is a generation and different from the generation with Jesus Christ, with mother born in uh, a son to um, create more um, well, you can help me with that. No, listen, for the time man sinned, man has inherited a sinful nature, 
and all people from Adam until now, right down, has inherited sinful nature. Of course, uh, in different generations, in different epochs of time, um, man's sin became aggravated. As a matter of fact, look at the flood. Think about that for just a moment, that man's heart became so wicked that God had to destroy the entire planet Earth with the flood. Okay. What I'm trying to get in at, what I'm trying to get in at, I'm trying to get a generation of um, sinful people after they start to make babies. And then we have to um, get another generation again after Mary got um, Jesus Christ. Yes, he bonded, uh, no, no, it had nothing to do with Mary. It had nothing to do with Mary. The, the new generation is a born-again generation who put their faith and trust in Christ. Mary was a vessel to bring the Savior into the world. And it's through your faith and trust in the Savior that begins a transformation. So we have a, a Christian generation, real, authentic believers who put their faith and trust in Christ. That's the generation, that's the new generation that you're talking about. has nothing to do with Mary. Mary is just a vessel for the Savior to come, and when put, people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, His transforming power changed those people so that they're different and live a different different life. That's the new generation, but it comes through Jesus Christ, not through Mary. No, no, I don't, don't want to take to Mary because if you want Mushi and you can be nobody else, you know. Because you know people like um, criticize Ricardo, you know. We're not praising Mary as we say to give us life or give us anything. No, we just say that we just want to ask if she can do things for us. Just like when she um turn, ask them to turn the water into wine. Yeah. So um, if Mary can speak to you today, you know what she'll tell you. Yeah, if Mary could speak, if Mary could speak to, the, yeah, if Mary could speak to the world today, she said, "Follow thou him, bow your knees to Jesus Christ as your savior." That's what she would say to you and to everybody that listened to her. Bow your knees to Jesus Christ and let him become your savior. That's what she would say today. If she could speak to you. Codrington, thank you very much for your call from Antigua. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate you calling in with your questions. The phone line is open and available. If you have a question, you can call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. We'll put you live on the air. Pastor, back to our topic of crime and punishment. Yeah, I was. Uh, we, we talked about that, and then we talked about the matter of the, the, the cause of crime. And what we pointed out is that up until the 19th century, everybody agreed that uh, it was a man's sin- sinful disposition. He was a sinful person, and therefore that's why people do that. And then that began to change uh, when uh, we introduced psychology and sociology into the picture. Uh, psychology gave us a basis to blame uh, the fact that there's an unconsciousness in us that makes us do what we do. And so we're not responsible because it's the unconscious nature in us. And then sociology added the the element of the environment. The environment makes people who they are, and therefore it's the environment that creates the criminals. Therefore, the criminal is not responsible. We we talked about that, and and the repercussions of that, of course, is that um, it actually absolves the person of responsibility. And then we talked about the fact that um, because of cultural relativism, that there's nothing absolute. Uh, that in itself, and no, 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 no transcendent values, that has now caused people actually to be able to believe they can do anything, and they're not to be held accountable. And then uh, the, in the fact of what's called environmental determinism, that your environment determines your, your destiny. You begin now to blame the government, mom, dad, uh, blame my traumatic experiences in my pre-birth, my prenatal birth, and then my postnatal birth, and then I, I blame the police. I, I blame I blame everybody basically. That's where we are today. 
uh, as far as crime uh, is concerned. It's one of the great errors of our times. Uh, and uh, Christians need to wake up to understand what is happening. Because when you come to the Bible, crime is a matter of the heart. Jesus made that very, very clear in the book of Matthew. Out of the heart comes murders and adulteries and, and thefts and, and robbery. All of that comes from the heart. It's not has, The environment creates uh, factors that might lead a person to that, but it's not... It's because it's in the person itself when the environment is, is, is in that situation. It pulls it out of the person, but the individual is responsible for his decisions and his actions. And uh, so we've got to get away from the idea that the criminal is not responsible, society responsible. It does great disservice to the criminal himself because it takes his destiny out of his control and uh, it demeans his manhood because it means he's not a person who can make choices. Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling. And go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, good evening, Hey, good evening, sir. How are you doing? Doing well. Good to hear you. What can we do for you? Pastor Murphy, two questions. Sure. Revelation chapter 20. Uh-huh. I'll tell you about the sea give up the dead and death and hell was cast into a lake of fire. Uh-huh. Why is it about death and hell? What, what death is it talking about? Was crashing? Cast into a lake of fire. Well, we, sorry. Now, I was just going to read those verses just to give okay, context. Go ahead, yeah. uh, Revelation 20, verse 13 to 15 says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Yeah, look, the, the fact there is that it's referring to two things. Death has to do with the body, and Hades has to do with the soul of the departed who are, are lost. And uh, when it says that death uh, has, has to do with the death giving up the, the, the body part, which is the grave, and Hades will be giving up the, the soul part of hum, humankind. So both basically uh, give it up, and uh, this is where people will be judged. Remember that when a, when a person dies, his body goes to, to the grave, basically. But his soul, if he's a believer, it goes to be with the Lord. If he's not a believer, it goes to Hades. And that's why in this final judgment in Revelation 20, which has to do with the great white throne judgment, it's talking about judging all those who are not saved. So death will give up their body, the grave give, and then the, the, the uh, Hades will give up their soul where they are in a temporary state until uh, the final judgment, which is the uh, Gehenna proper, which is, is what the Bible calls hell. Okay. It, 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 let me just say this, uh, Mr. Williams. Sometimes people confuse the word Hades, hell. Uh, if you check the word in the New Testament, the word is Gehenna. Okay? And mm-hmm. they, that's, that's, that's the confusion there uh, that they use the word Hades. Hades is the synonym for Sheol in the Old Testament. That's where all the dead in the Old Testament, that's where the dead went. But if you read um, Luke chapter 16, it's very, very clear that when a person died prior to Christ's resurrection, that there were two compartments, one for the, the, the lost and one for the saved. One was called Abraham's bosom and one was called Hades' part of it. And that's where the confusion comes in by trying to draw a parallel between uh, Gehenna and, uh, and Hades. And the mistake needs to be cleared up by looking at the Greek language and even getting a Greek lexicon to see that they're not the same. Question. Sure. Uh, when they say that there is no more apostle because nobody see God or whatever, and 
Bible tells you that he made some apostles, some pastors, yeah. some prophets. Yeah. How, how you explain that? No, but again, you have to understand that what was the purpose of the apostles, what was the purpose of evangelists, what was the purpose of the pastors, what was the purpose of the evangelists, what was the purpose of um, the, uh, the apostles, what was the purpose? And it's very, very clear that the apostles and the prophets, they laid the foundation for the church. That is found in Ephesians chapter 4, I think. I'll give you the reference, uh, maybe offline. But it's said that they're the ones that laid the foundation for the church. They were the ones that God used initially to send the gospel out, etc. Once the foundation has been laid and the church has been established, that those two gifts, the gift of apostle and the gift of prophet, was no longer needed. You didn't need the prophetic uh, anymore because the word of God was complete. What God has to say to us, God has said to us in his word from Genesis to Revelation. So the, the full revelation of God has now been given. There's no longer a prophetic voice any longer because God's word is complete. The apostle, again, was to witness to Christ's resurrection that he had seen the Lord. That's what he was done to verify and to substantiate the, the proclamation of the gospel, that they could say, yeah, I saw the Lord, and I can testify that I saw the Lord. Their purpose was confirmatory of the truth that was being preached. They, they have fulfilled their task. The church now has been founded, its foundation has been laid. What is needed now is the pastor and the e evangelist, and the teacher is what is needed in the church today. The pastor, the evangelist, and the teacher, those are the gifts uh, within that remain in terms of personnel within the church uh, as well. Similarly, some of the some of the gifts that, the, that are given in the in the um, in the other parts, um, the book of Matthew, sorry, book of um, Corinthians, chapter twelve, thirteen, and fourteen, and also in Ephesians chapter four, also in Romans chapter twelve. There are certain gifts that are mentioned there. Some of those gifts uh, were used to confirm the witness of the gospel when it first started. Remember that every time God did a started a new movement, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament, it was always uh, followed by miracles to establish uh, a new dispensation. Once that has been established, you find that miracles peter out, peter off. That is, you look at that in the case of uh, Moses or in the case of uh, Elijah. Elijah. Yeah, you see that those gifts Th those things Peter off because it, whatever God wanted to do he had already established and don't forget this too Mr. Williams the entire Christian life is to be lived by faith we don't live by sight and we're not dependent on seeing things the word of God is our guide and the Bible says so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God we develop faith by the word as we get into the word it generates faith in us so we don't need the props of these uh, other things that people and, and our Lord made a statement that is astounding he said an evil generation is a generation that seeks signs and wonders but that's the generation we're in today <coughs> they're not prepared to take the word of God on, on faith value <coughs> they want to see pyrotechnics I remember what our Lord said in Luke chapter 16 he said though one be raised from the dead and go to them if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they'll not even believe a man raised from the dead. Yeah. It's the Word of God that's the power to change and transform people, and we need to get into the Word. That is the secret to our power and our strength. So, so Pastor, <coughs> one, one, one of my people get up and say, he ordained apostle and an apostle to die for us. Like a man get up and call himself apostle, and a pastor will ordain a man to be apostle. So that is wrong. Mr. Williams, let me just tell you this, if you don't know this. 
religion is big business in the states very big business there are no places that will you can go to and train to be an apostle and train to be a prophet but at great cost to yourself it's a money racket if you don't know that okay so i'm just alerting you that as a big money racket going on in the states and religion <coughs> is part of it you don't even have to go overseas you can just go to some websites and get a certificate <laughs> Thank you very much for the Sir, all I would say to you, listen, this is the age of deception. If you don't know that, I, I, I can see it clearly every day. It's an age of deception, and we got to get into God's Word so that we don't get deceived ourselves. Our Lord said, if it were possible in the last days, even the very elect would be deceived. Let us get in. That's our, our only security is the Word of God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my brother. God bless. You too. Thank you very much for the call. Thank you for listening and for encouraging others to tune into That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor, a WhatsApp comment from St. Martin. Good night, Pastor. Everybody knows when it's Good Friday and when it's Easter Sunday. Jesus kept the Sabbath even in his death while he was in the grave. He set the first example even in death he kept the Sabbath. Sunday is regular day that God did not make holy. Let's read Exodus 20:11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Friday is still the sixth day, and Saturday is still the seventh day. Man has changed Saturday for Sunday. When Jesus comes to this world, when when Jesus comes, this world will end with a Sabbath Sunday issues. You sound quite. Uh, you, you know your presentation there might. I don't know who it will impress, but it certainly has impressed me. Uh, you clearly have a, um, a Sabbath m- mindset, and I don't think this program would ever change it. And I don't think you'll ever change our program either. So it's one of those issues. All I, all I would say to you is this. Jesus had to fulfill every demand of the law to bring us from under the law. So that's why he has was born under the law, and that's why he observed the Sabbath under the law, because it was a requirement under the Old Testament economy that this be done. And for him to bring us from under the the law, he had to be able to fulfill it for us. So he did everything, every requirement that the law demanded, he fulfilled it so that he could bring us from under the burden of the law. So to say that (coughs) Jesus did this, I agree with you. I agree with you. I don't dispute that whatsoever. But the purpose why he did that is that having fulfilled the law for us, he can now bring us into a new dispensation, a new order, where the law is no longer a requirement under this new dispensation. <coughs> if you read Second Corinthians chapter 3 for yourself, you'll see very, very clearly it's talking about the law has been abolished, has been put aside as a means of God dealing with us. And just in case you wonder if it refers to the Ten Commandments, it says it was written in stone. And the only part that was written in stone, of course, were the Ten Commandments. So that has been set aside. All I would say to you that we have the liberty and the freedom as believers uh, to worship the Lord. And we worship Him not on a Sabbath, not on a Sunday. We worship Him seven days a week. Every day is worship for the believer. There's no uniqueness about uh, the fact that we got Sunday. A believer tries to serve the Lord every single day. And Paul in the writings in Colossians 
And the book of Romans says that every man must be fully persuaded in his mind in respect to what day he wants to worship. So if you want to worship on a Sunday, I'm not going to fret with you, sir. I'm not going to fret with you. But please don't insist that I must follow you in that regard. Um, and, and the other thing I just pointed out before is that the Sabbath was a type, a shadow of coming rest that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Christ has fulfilled that by offering eternal rest. The substance has come. The shadow has fulfilled its purpose, so we don't need to go back to the shadow. It's just like all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They all pointed to Christ. But once the substance came, we no longer have to go back to the shadows. That's why we don't sacrifice today, uh, and so on and so forth. So I think um, if you understood the dispensational teaching of the Scripture in respect to the New uh, Covenant, I think your opinion might change, but chances are it'd be very difficult because you're coming out of a, a, a Seventh-day Adventist background, etc. And as is the practice, since we begin this program three years ago, um, our answers are based on Scripture and the interpretation of Scripture. If you are interested in hearing an episode specifically discussing the topic of the Sabbath and what the Bible teaches about the Sabbath and addressing miscommunication, uh, misunderstandings of verses about the Sabbath, go to That's Truth podcast. You can get to it a number of ways. The easiest way is just to go to Google, type in That's Truth podcast, and you can choose your provider, whether it it be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Anchor, Spotify, and go to the archive, and you can go to episode number four, the fourth episode that we did, and that is the one about the Sabbath. Maybe you're not interested about the Sabbath, but you are interested about different cultic teachings or suicide, or maybe you're interested in how to overcome an addiction, an addiction to pornography, or dealing with anxiety. We have topics on many, many different episodes, many different topics. Uh, tonight is episode 157. So there are over 100 topics there, and you can go and use that as a reference. Maybe it's not for yourself. Maybe it's for a family member that's struggling with something. Send them to that reference. It is a resource that is there to assist you. The name of the program is That's Truth. It is a live interactive call-in program. There are a number of ways you can communicate with us. You can call and be put live on the air. The phone number is 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. We are talking tonight in between questions. We're talking about the topic of crime and punishment, continuing the topic from last week. Pastor, what is the biblical view of crime? Well, the scriptures uh, point out very clearly that crime is the responsibility of individuals, man's fallen nature, and that people make decisions that have consequences, and um, they violate the law, and when you violate the law, that is a crime, and uh, the person is worthy of punishment. But the, the responsibility is laid squarely at the foot of the individual, and uh, the Bible doesn't allow you to excuse or, or blame others for your actions which I think is the phenomenon that's going on currently when it comes to criminal matters. And I think the West is beginning to suffer the consequences of that kind of uh, distorted thinking, which is so contrary to Scripture. 
Pastor, a question that's coming from a listener. Pastor, I've heard you endorse capital punishment. Do you run the risk by endorsing capital punishment that you may lessen the likelihood of the person put to death having the chance to be saved? So, in fact, could you be damning their soul to hell? Well, that's a, you know, a person can get saved in jail. If I mean, I'm not saying that there's never been a case where a person probably has not been executed uh, um, and didn't commit the crime. But I'm for capital punishment when there is knowing, premeditated, willful uh, crime against another person where a person's life is, is killed. I'm not talking manslaughter now. I'm talking about those cases where it is known and there's no question about it that it's been brutal, uh, the evidence is there, etc., etc. I don't think there's any uh, person who reads the Bible that would think that the, the government doesn't have a right to execute capital punishment. It is there in the New Testament. The, 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 the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. As a matter of fact, Paul is an amazing character. Paul said in chapter t- 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 uh, 26, if I did anything worthy of murder, I don't have any problem of, of death. I don't mind dying. That's what Paul said. He himself recognized that the government has a legal right to execute criminals, so he didn't have a problem with that. Um so I think that what happens with people is that they look at one or two cases and uh, they just try to make that as though that the criminal system is so unjust. I think that's a political ploy. I think the media has exploited that uh, ruthlessly. And I don't think that's, that's, that's the case. As a matter of fact, when I give you the stats uh, later on in the program, if we're allowed to do it tonight, you'll see that part of the reason why there's so much crime in America has to do with the fact that criminals get away with so much. How many, I mean, it's, a, it's staggering when you hear the facts, not what the propaganda is on the media, but the facts about what really is, is, is the current situation. When you learn, uh, when I give you the facts, you begin to see, oh, there's a completely different picture altogether. Yeah, Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Uh, good evening. Good evening, sir. How are you, I'm fi- gentlemen? I'm thank- fine, thank you. How are you doing? Uh, not much at all. I'm trying to keep safe. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Yes. Um, Pastor Murphy? Yes, sir. I am very curious. I took an atlas of the map of the world. Uh-huh. And, they, and I'm trying to search to see if I could find the area where the Garden of Eden was. Uh-huh. I, I, do you have any idea exactly... We're on the map of the world. It, it was. Well, if you get a good Bible dictionary or you get a good Bible atlas, uh, I'm not talking about secular uh, atlas. They're good Bible uh, Bible geography books. You've got uh, if you get a good Bible that has maps in the back, you'll see that they normally locate uh, the Garden of Eden in the area of Mesopotamia, especially near the the Babylonian city of Ur the Chaldees. In that area where the Tigris Euphrates River is, we know that in the book of Genesis, we are told that four rivers fell, uh, flowed through the Garden of Eden, and two of those rivers are the River Euphrates and uh, the, the Tigris River, and that's exactly where it is, where Babylon is, where where you call Iraq is today. You see yes, that those yes. two, that, that's where approximately where it is, somewhere in in there. Okay, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah, but a good a good Bible dictionary or a good Bible map would normally indicate that that is where the, the location generally was. Oh, okay, sir. Thank you very much. Sir. You're welcome. Thank God you bless you. Thanks much. for calling. Thanks for the call. 
I heard an interesting episode. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Ken Ham's organization. Uh-huh. Uh, they didn't. They have a 60-second radio program that comes on each weekday. A few months back, I remember hearing an episode talking about um, the fact that you had the Garden of Eden, and then you had the flood, which completely changed yeah. the whole layout of the earth. Uh-huh. So how certain could we be? And one of the theories was that uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates may not be the same location, but it's just the names of rivers mm-hmm. that Adam or that Noah or the history were familiar with. So after the flood, they used similar names. It's one of those questions we'll have to ask when we get to heaven, yeah. exactly what the case is. Yeah, but th- clearly the, the area, um, for example, we know that the Garden of Eden was east of Israel. Okay. Every direction in the Bible is in relation to the nation Israel. And we know the garden was planted east. Okay. So wherever that is, it's east of Israel. And if you look where Israel is in relation to that part of the east, you see that's exactly the area the garden of Eden would have been. Right. That's where you get your directions from. So anytime you find a direction given in scriptures, it has to do with the nation of Israel because God chose Israel from the very beginning to be his special piece of real estate he would give to his people. And all directions are in relation to the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, there's a passage in the scripture where it says that Israel is the center of the world almost. Okay. It's a passage to that extent. So not just the center of time, the cross being the center yeah. of time. And if you look at it, quite frankly, you see where Israel is in relation to all the other uh, continents. You'll see she's almost in the center, basically. Everything seems to radiate f- from her. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 843. Still enough time if you want to send in your question. You can send it via WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Pastor, back to the biblical view of crime. Or do you want to move on to that? Let's move to the next one. All right. How do you see the law of morality and crime? Are they related? And should morality be factored into making of laws that deal with crime? Look, I don't see how you can avoid the element of morality entering into a a matter of deciding on a law. Uh, I don't see how it's possible not to do that. As a matter of fact, um, when you legislate uh, a law, you've actually brought morality into it because it becomes a matter of right and wrong. If you legislate that that the employee must do this or... Uh, an individual must do this before they get married or whatever it is, you're actually entering the realm of morality because you're saying if you don't do it, you'll be punished. And why you punish it? Because it's against some rule or some regulation, so it's something right and something wrong. Uh, I think people who make the mistake that you can't legislate morality are either ignorant of the fact, they're prejudiced, or they're just parroting some statement that somebody else has made. Most laws deal with the question of morality. For example, take theft. Okay. Okay. I don't see how you can avoid uh, a law on theft without making making a, uh, a judgment that something is right and something is wrong. That I have a right to private property, and you have no right to take my private property. Take assault. I mean, how can you not think that that's not a moral choice? I have a right to protection, my own individual protection. Why are you going to hit me? And uh, I didn't give you the right to hit me. Again, there's a moral element. There's something right and something wrong. Robbery. Uh, where you actually take from me, uh, take off me per- personally. Uh, murder. How is that not mo- a moral issue? Um, what about embezzlement of funds? How is that not a moral issue? Extortion. Charging more than you should charge. And, and um, you know, you, you can actually, that's why you've got uh, agencies, a government agency to control prices because people can be gouged. 
How is that not a moral issue, something is right or wrong? Uh, marriage, deciding what marriage is. And, and what about incest? Who, who decides how all of this matter? Uh, abortion. Many countries today are, again, I think, I think it's illegal here in Antigua. I'm not too sure if it's on the books. But I know in St. Lucia it's illegal to, to commit abortion. What about buggery? It's certainly in the books of Antigua that buggery is wrong. All of those are moral issues. For, so, for people to say that you should not bring morality into making of law, to my mind, as I said, they're either ignorant, prejudiced, or they're just parroting a phrase that they heard other people say. But if you think about it quite frankly, uh, anytime you make a law, there is some moral element involved because it's a matter of what is right and what is wrong, and that brings morality into this whole matter. What about private morality? Should that be legislated? Does the government have a place to do that? <laughs> well, let, let's talk about that for just a moment because um, what sin, uh, what, uh, what, th- whatever, what is private uh, other than sin to the heart? Okay, Think about well, that for just a, just a moment, right? Because in actual fact, uh, if it is private, how does it not have, a, it has repercussions, an impact on other people. So it, it's not just a matter of I doing something, but it's the impact that it has on others. What about the individual who's committing adultery with another man's wife in his own bedroom? It's in his private property. Yeah, but again, even though it, it's a private matter, uh, in my judgment, that is that is evil, that is wrong, that's a moral issue. And I think, qu- quite frankly, that um, we have to be very careful where we draw the line. But the, the problem we're having today is is that uh, we don't want to bring any kind of morality into the making of law, uh, and and that is where the problem lies. Because, for example, I think that I think abortion is murder. I have no question in my mind abortion is murder. That's a matter of morality, and I think that the the government is making a grave grave mis, grievous, grievous mistake if, for the sake of not getting into people making decisions privately, that they can have a private abortion or, or something like that, and therefore it should not be deemed illegal, I think the protection of human life uh, is sacrosanct. And I think it trumps this concept of morality, of uh, private morality. Uh, I personally think that adultery is wrong. Um, again, a society has to decide what sins to punish and what crimes to punish. Right, God would deal with the sins of the individual, but the society has to. De- what I'm worried about is the taking, removing the complete element of uh, the law has nothing to do with morality. Okay, that's what I'm I'm concerned about because the pe- people it's coming to the point now today where they're trying to decriminalize a lot of issues, and the argument that is being uh, used, uh, Nathan, is that there's no complainant, um, there are no. Um, um, nobody gets hurt, basically. Let me use an illustration. Take drugs. Okay. Right? That is one they're trying to decriminalize because they said there's no real complainant. But is that truly a private sin? Uh, how many young men's lives have been baked and cooked? Mm. How many homes have been destroyed? How many people have died through guns because once you have, once you have drugs, you're going to have crime and you've got your turf you're trying to defend? Take the matter of um, uh, the idea of gambling, for example. Uh, is that an innocent crime? Is that a private matter? That affects the entire society. How many homes in this country and outside this country, when money should be brought home to take care of the children, is now spent at the casino? 
what about the, the effects that has on the life of the wife and the children? So it, it's not as private as people think. Uh, what about prostitution? I mean, I can do with my body what I want, but is that really a private issue? Does that not bring down the morals of a country? Does that not demean the dignity of humanity by doing those kind of things? Uh, what about um, strip clubs? Uh, if I want to go to strip clubs, it's a private matter. But is it really a private matter? Is it not corrupting the morals of the next generation? So to say that it's only a private matter really is, a, is, a, is a really a misnomer, to be honest with you, because people are affected by these things. What about um, pornography again? Well, if I want to watch pornography, it's a private matter. But is it really a private matter? Do you know that most of the serial killers admit that it's pornography that drove them to commit especially crimes against women? I don't know if people know that. Sobering uh, thought. It's not, it's not an innocent thing, right? Uh, why do you think a lot of marriages are breaking up? Right? Because pro- uh, pornography, to a great extent, has become a surrogate enjoyment of, of sexual pleasure. And they find it more attractive than even their wives. So how can it be a private matter? It's actually destroying the home. I'm just saying to you that it's impossible to divorce morality from law. And those who say that you should not uh, take the element of morality into this whole matter are really either ignorant or they're just uh, parroting off something somebody has said. And uh, they have not really weighed the consequences of these matters. Pastor, we have a call. Thank you for calling, and go ahead quickly with your question, please. Yes, good evening. Good evening. How are you, sir? I'm not doing too bad. Good hearing you, Nathan. Good evening. Um, Ecclesiastes 8.11. Okay. That says, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, speedily, Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Yeah, Nathan, that's one of the principles that we're going to draw to the attention when we talk about crime and why there's so much crime. And what the writer is talking about is because it takes so long to delay justice. And uh, it goes through such a long... Sometimes people are uh, uh, waiting for years before justice is administered. People are emboldened to commit crime when they know that there's this prolonged period of time and that's why the justice system uh, needs to be more expeditious in dealing with, with the criminal and sentencing uh, and that's what the writer of Proverbs is talking about there and what Ecclesiastes is talking about that the delay of punishment and dealing with the criminal emboldens other people to commit crime so they need to be to be dealt with more quickly and so that justice is administered more quickly rather than this prolonged period of time and by the way when you're in jail for a long period of time and you've got in, uh, Amnesty International that say, well, you know, you need to reduce the sentence because it's taken so long. Sometimes they even have to release the person. Pressure is brought against governments. So when you talk about administering justice and, and trying to deal with the criminal element, you have to, re- you have to try and um, almost um, get the justice system reordered to get uh, um, penalties, etc., be done more quickly. So that the criminal understands that, you know, uh, justice be meted out uh, as quickly as possible. But delay encourages people to, to commit more crime. That so a very valid, very valid point you're making there, Nathan. Very, very valid. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for your call. We appreciate you calling from Nevis and listening from Nevis. 
Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.53. We're talking about crime and punishment. This is That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program. Pastor Murphy, along the concept of private morality, how is this concept affecting the legislative agenda of modern democracies? Well, again, uh, one of the things that is happening, as I point out to you, Nathan, is that because they're trying to make this uh, this subtle distinction that things are private and if there's no co- complainant uh, therefore there should be no should not be viewed as a crime and this is what I'm talking about here in relation to these issues like drugs adultery uh, adult consensual sex uh, gambling vagrancy prostitution pornography strip clubs all of these now are being going to be uh, decriminalized and that's the danger that, that, that happens when you reach that stage that morality should not be involved in making laws. But all of these have long-term effects on society. So it must not be just uh, because there's no criminal complaint against a person. But what about the guys next door that is a smoking pot and uh, is influencing my 10-year-old child or my 9-year-old child? And eventually uh, he gets hooked on it as well and his brain gets cooked. He loses his education, he loses his future. This is a very serious matter. Uh, what about when you have this problem in the schools? And I, I'm telling you, it's a problem in the schools in spite of what people are saying. I've spoken to police people who have de- deal with these kind of issues in school, and I think they were appalled of the suggestion, for example, to, to legalize uh, marijuana. They see the danger of it. They know the damage that is done to youth, and they're concerned that uh, this would have been treated this way. I'm not, now, I understand the problem. To be very honest with you, that um, a person can jeopardize their entire career by having a criminal record in their teenage years for using marijuana. But to treat it so recklessly that you can have four plants in your home and you can take so much amount uh, in your home, etc., etc., to my mind, that is completely destroying the, the next generation. It's encouraging them. That, that you're not setting high expectations for people any longer. You're lowering the standard. And you never elevate people by lowering the standard. I think it's a grievous mistake on the government's part. Do you see a problem with, I think it's safe to call this a trending philosophy, that of uh, this topic that seems to be have captured the fantasy of legislatures and governments globally? Well, again... Do you it, think it's going to better us? What? This thinking? Yeah, 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 the thinking. No, this kind of thinking can never uh, be beneficial uh, to the average person who wants to live at peace and harmony within the, within the country. This is going to exacerbate the problem. It's going to lead to increased crime. And I don't think the situation is going to get better. I think it's going to worsen. I think, uh, for example, the, the whole idea of decriminalizing marijuana and giving such a, a generous use of the, of the drug, and anybody basically can... Look, I, we have a church there. You know our church. And quite frankly, uh, sometimes you're in the church, and people behind the church are smoking marijuana. It comes right into the church. I mean, but who cares, basically? It's, it's reckless. I mean, we have a right in our homes to do it because we can grow four plants and we can smoke what we want to. This is the kind of bold thing that you see. You see people today that openly use the drug and they know that the police is not going to do anything about it, et cetera, et cetera. So all it does is embolden and you're going to have a younger generation and a younger generation getting off on this so-called miracle weed, which is really a destructive weed. So I don't think this, this, this kind of mindset is going to help the situation. It's going to worsen it question from a listener to finish out the episode tonight. Pastor, the woman who was caught in adultery was to be stoned, but Jesus said not to stone her. 
So you could say that he broke the law. How come he ignored the law, and is he therefore guilty of the law himself? Well, let me put it this way. Under the Old Testament law, she should have been stoned if she was caught with adultery. But again, uh, Christ did not have any legal right to impose the death penalty because we're living under Roman rule. So the Jews didn't have a right to institute uh, a crucifixion or institute uh, a stoning uh, because that was not their right. They were living under the, the Roman law. And Christ lived as a Jew. He lived under the Jewish law. He fulfilled the Jewish law. But he had no right uh, under, under Roman law to insist on uh, the woman being stoned. The other thing is this. How come they only brought her and not the man that was part of the adultery? You don't think that is something that he would have considered as well? Uh, if you caught her in adultery, so where's the man? Interesting right? question. Where's the man? And then the other thing, of course, this was designed to trap him. Uh, and this is where the subtlety of all this, this comes. If he assumes a role that is not his, he's, he has a judicial right living under the, the Roman law, and he's trying to impose a sentence that the Roman law doesn't give, uh, the Roman authorities uh, certainly can arrest him and, and charge him. So it's, it's, a, it's a trap that was set. If you didn't get a chance to send in your question tonight, you can go ahead and send it in even after the episode, and we will answer it as we start next week's episode, Lord willing. WhatsApp or text it to 268-782-1454. 268-782-1454. Keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and have a safe night. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.